0: Our plan is just to celebrate the risen Jesus all day, every day, including every time that we gather as a local church. Maybe all of you know, but perhaps some of you don't, that the whole reason the church gathers on Sunday, which the Old Testament Israelites would do on Saturday, the whole reason that shifted is because rest is not at the end of the week. The seventh day, God rested from all His work. But because the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead on Sunday morning, we now Sabbath in Him and we mark it by our gathering together. To begin our week of work, we rest in Jesus. Not as the conclusion of our work week. Sunday's the first day of the week and we're here because Jesus is alive and we'll be here, Lord willing, at 10 a.m. next Sunday also. And you're welcome every time we're here. But what we've been seeing in the book of 1 Corinthians, as we're going to see again today, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer. In fact, the title of this whole sermon series is, The Gospel for Life. This is what we mean by that. We finally made our way to chapter 7, we'll read it here in just a moment, but just for a quick refresher, chapter 1, the main point is that the gospel is the answer to the divisions in the church. So when I say God is the most practical thing for you, what I mean is, if you're at odds with somebody, the gospel's the answer. That's chapter one. If we were to lick our finger and go to chapter two, we would find that the gospel is therefore our only message. I determine to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, that's a person, and him crucified. That's his gospel work. In chapter 3, we find that the gospel is the foundation upon which we live because Jesus himself is the foundation of the church, the rock-solid landing place where all God's people will not be carried away when the rains fall and the floods come of God's just wrath. In chapter 4, we find out that the gospel is the only lens, the only glasses that we can wear to see clearly, to render proper judgments. And... That the gospel is a sacred trust that we must live in agreement with as we proclaim the truth of Jesus. We must seek for our lives to be under His Lordship. As Jim preached in that wonderful message just a few weeks ago from chapter 4, gospel ministers are the under rowers in the boat. Not seen, but serving. In chapter 5, we find that the gospel is the answer to deal with immorality. If you live in sexual immorality, God's word to you is not stop. His word to you is start finding real satisfaction in Jesus. Come to Christ. Find out what you're really made for. Stop using people and find fulfillment that no one else on earth could provide you. Chapter 6, we find out that the gospel is the price that God paid for our redemption. We were bought with a price and Jesus put His whole body on the cross because He intends for your whole body to belong to Him well it should be no surprise then that now we're in chapter 7 Paul's gonna again apply the gospel to the issue he's writing about and on Easter Sunday maybe you'll be able to tell your grandkids one day that one time I went to this kind of strange church in downtown Memphis and they met in a gym and on Easter Sunday they preached on singleness marriage widows and virgins and divorces and stuff like that that's just what comes up in the text so that's where we're going because it's a long reading The scripture will be projected behind me if you would like to follow along that way. But whatever helps you, I've rehearsed this reading aloud, I do that weekly in various translations just to help myself and to hear the word of the Lord, but it takes about five minutes. And the next five minutes are going to be the most important five minutes of your day. Listen to the word of the living God. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God. One in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through, the, through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband, For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk and so I direct in all the churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise also, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion. As one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress. That it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And If a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life. And I am trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, that the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. And those who weep as though they did not weep. And those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it for the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit." Not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. But if any man thinks that he's acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she has passed her youth, and it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will and has decided this in his own heart, to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then, both he who gives his own daughter, virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. This is God's Word. Would you join me again at God's throne as we ask for His help as we consider this passage. Indeed, God, You are the most practical, the greatest need in every moment. And the only place that we can have a favorable meeting between ourselves, sinful though we are, and You, the Holy One of Heaven is to come to You by Your Spirit in Jesus Christ the Lord who died for our sins and rose again. And we believe that in His risen victory we have redemption, we have a relationship with You as we turn from our sin and trust in Him alone. And now we understand, Lord, that You've written to us a book. And in that book, You tell us what it looks like to live a life that pleases You. And so we're asking that You would bring 1 Corinthians 7 to every life that can hear my voice and by your spirit you would show us what it looks like to please the lord we ask this in jesus name amen chapter 7 starts in verse 1 a new section of the book of first corinthians we've dealt with a couple of sections already and we dealt with the hinge passage last week where the first big part leads to the second big part but this starts a new section, 1 Corinthians 7, and you can see that because Paul is responding in verse 1 to the questions that the Corinthians sent to him. So Paul's pastoring a church in a city called Ephesus, and the church in Corinth that he had started and spent 18 months, a year and a half with, they sent a delegation of Chloe's people to Paul, and in the delegation, the people who went to see Paul, they brought some questions to Paul from the church, and here Paul begins to deal with their questions well he wasn't ignoring their questions for the first six chapters he was telling them the things they should have been asking him about and so he started with the big deals the gospel issues at the core and now he begins to apply the gospel to the specific questions that they're asking their first question is marriage and singleness how does the gospel apply to that does God care how do we figure it out there are three remaining answers that Paul gives to three remaining questions in the book of 1st Corinthians and we'll deal with them as we get there in chapter 8 about Christian liberties chapter 12 about spiritual gifts and chapter 16 about offerings and money given for the advance of the gospel well before we dive into the meat of this chapter I just wanna make sure we're on the same page about something that's confused a lot of readers me included at first glance if you paid any attention as we read through you might have got tripped up on a couple of phrases that Paul uses like verse 10 25 40 and then a similar kind of phrase in verse 12 in verse 10 Paul says I get uh, I give instructions not I but the Lord same thing in verse 25 and 40 not me this is the Lord but then you look at verse 12 and you're like huh <laughs> I say not the Lord So on one hand, it seems like Paul's saying at first, the Lord's telling you this stuff, I'm telling you that stuff. That's not what's happening, and some of you know this already, but for those who are unaware of what's going on here in this passage, what Paul's saying is, now when Jesus was here on earth, before his death on a cross for your sins, before his resurrection from the dead to make you right before God if you'd put all your trust in him, he lived for 33 and a half years for the last three plus years of that time he did a lot of teaching a lot of preaching a lot of conversations a lot of discipleship when he was here he said not I but the Lord said well now he's in heaven and his Holy Spirit is telling me what to say not the Lord me see what's happening so he's referencing when he says not me but the Lord things that Jesus taught during his earthly life and ministry I, not the Lord, things that the Holy Spirit is inspiring him to write that Jesus didn't teach during his earthly ministry, at least in these explicit ways. Well, it's a long chapter that really breaks down into two pretty simple categories, and congratulations, you fit into one of them, and some of you who fit in one will one day fit into another. So this sermon applies to everybody. The first is the call of Christ to the married, those who are married. And the second category is, is the call of Christ to the single. Now, I want to emphasize the call of Christ. Who dictates how you live? How does Christ's Word bear out in your daily life? Does it matter? You know, we get packages in the mail and whatever goodies we ordered and get shipped to our doorstep are oftentimes in boxes, but you open the box and the... Material we ordered is surrounded by the bubble wrap or the air package, uh, big bubbles or the styrofoam pellets. And those air bubble packages and those styrofoam pellets, if we're honest, if you're honest, many people live like God's Word has about that much effect on their life. God says something, you know He said it, but it bounces right off of you like a styrofoam pellet. Leaves no dent, really makes no effect. And other people live like there's weight, there's gravity, there's substance. And I'm asking you, not if you're married or single, I'm asking you, what is Christ's call on your life? Are you called by Christ? Have you been called? Yes. Now I understand there's a special call and internal sense of that calling and a church's affirmation to things like gospel ministry are you called to the gospel ministry I'm that's not what I'm talking about I'm asking if you're called to follow Jesus have you heard his voice my sheep Jesus said hear my voice and they follow me have you been called by Christ if so what does he have to say about your relationships or your current condition married or single well beneath singleness Paul deals with a couple of categories You can be single in a couple of ways. That is, you've never been married or you've previously been married. And under the single who have previously been married, there's a couple of categories there. The only way to have been previously married is either your spouse dies, that's a widow or widower, or you're divorced and your marriage covenant was broken for some reason. Well, that's the outline of the chapter, married and single. To the married, Paul says two things, and to the single, Paul says A couple of more things. And I hope that you're going to conclude here in just a few moments that this sermon is less about marriage and more about the calling of Christ on your life right now. That's why I started with God is the most practical thing for you. You need God more than you need anything or anyone else. That will always be true into the endless eternities that pass after. Time is no more. And Paul's entire argument for why married people and single people in the church of Christ ought to live and behave in a certain way is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me show you. It's in verse 23. This is the ground argument of the entire chapter. Just like Paul's done in chapters 1-6, through he applied the gospel to every issue. He does it again here, no surprise, in chapter 7. Verse 23, you were bought with a price. That should maybe remind those who were with us last Sunday of something he said in chapter 6 verse 19. Same words, you were bought with a price. In chapter 6 he concluded therefore glorify God with your body. In chapter 7 he concludes in verse 23, therefore don't be any man's slave. And I'm here to ask you today a sincere question and I'm ask Him with a broken heart, and I shudder in fear, and God knows how I've prayed about what I'm about to say to you, but I shudder in fear that in the age to come, countless eternities, that many of you will be in sweet communion with Christ the Lord, the fellowship of the saints, the holy angels in a world that's more beautiful than you can ever imagine, but I stand before you today with a broken heart because I do tremble in fear that some of you, even if it's only one of you, will be in a Christless eternity. And I believe that in that place you might be reminded that there was a day that a broken hearted preacher stood before you and asked you a sincere question. I'm not preaching at you, harping on you, not trying to Bible thump you, I'm coming to you. With love from heaven, I'm praying that it will be a dart from an angel to stab you right in your heart. Have you been bought? Have you been bought? Who owns you? That's not a theoretical question. That's not preachy talk. You can answer that question before I can spit it out of my mouth. It's not hard, it's not complex. You don't need calculus or Pythagorean theorems to figure it out. Who owns you? Owns you. The deed to your life is signed over to another, or you're under the delusion that it's in your own possession. You have two options. There are not ten and there are not a hundred. You have two options. God Almighty, or Satan himself. To those who were formerly in Satan's kingdom, living in the city of Corinth, which is as, was, as, was as immoral as any city you have ever imagined, God in His great mercy snatched some from the fire like coals plucked from the burning, and He purchased them with His grace. I'm not asking what you've done or where you've been. I'm telling you there's more mercy in Jesus than there is sin in you. And if you'll go to the cross of Christ, and you'll put the syringe of your life into the ointment of Jesus, and you pull out by prayer, faith, and repentance, God, would you save a sinner like me? He'll own you as His child forever. You must turn from your sin and you must put your faith in Jesus. And this is the only way that you'll ever have a favorable meeting with God. This Gospel is the ground of a God-honoring life. This good news that Jesus bought us with His own blood at great cost to Himself, dying in our stead, paying the debt that we owed, suffering under God's just judgments for the sins we committed, not He Himself. This Gospel is the ground of a God-honoring life how does that and I'm being serious this isn't facetious or kinda rhetorical speak I want you to try to answer it in the privacy of your mind and in your heart answer this question how does the gospel apply to my marriage or if I'm single or if I'm a young person who hopes one day to be married or if I'm a divorcee or if I'm a widow or a widower I hear what you're saying Jordan but I don't see any real connections That's what this chapter is about. God wants you to know how to please Him. Let me show you that in the very middle of this long chapter, He says nothing about any of those relationships. In the very middle of this very long chapter, verses 17 to the mid-20s, He's talking about not marriage and singleness, but God and God's call on your life. The reason that's in the middle of the chapter is because that's the point. In verse 17, two times in verse 18, in verse 20, verse 21, two times in verse 22, and in verse 24, you can see it, God uses the word called. That's why I said, has Christ called you? Called, called, called. Eight times in eight verses. The point is that God has called you to Himself. And Paul plucks out, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, all sorts of different circumstances of life from which God is plucking people. He's no respecter of persons. And if you haven't been awakened to the wonderful reality, there are no impressive people in this world. None. Who cares if your anthill is a little taller than the next man's? There are no impressive people. And God is no respecter of persons. And to show His magnanimous heart of love and to display His glory in the most resplendent possible way. There is no greater way for God to display how glorious He is than rescuing sinful rebels from all across this world in every age and in every place through heaven's favorites. Jesus dismounting His throne, coming to this earth, living the life you were supposed to, dying the death you were supposed to, rising again to prove to the entire universe, angels and demons included, that God accepted His sacrifice. It is through Jesus that God's calling people from every station of life to be His children. Have you been called? That's right in the middle, I remind you, of a big chapter on marriage and singleness. I'm not asking if you're married or single. I'm asking, have you ever heard the voice of Jesus call you to Himself? Woo you to be His follower? Speak over you the overtures of His redeeming love? Assure you again that His blood and His righteousness is enough for your rightness with God forever. Well, with that, let's consider what God does have to say. About marriage and singleness. First, let's think about marriage and the call of Christ. As we turn our attention to God's instructions in this chapter concerning marriage, let me put a backdrop behind everything this chapter says, and that is, Jesus is the center chord of Ecclesiastes chapter 4, isn't He? When two people are married, that marriage is not very strong and doesn't have a ton of fiber in it that will prevent it from being torn apart unless there's a center cord braided into the relationship of those two people. And Ecclesiastes chapter 4 says, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. And Jesus is the center cord of a Christian marriage. When He gives you a spouse, He really gives you the opportunity to display His love to somebody that He loves. And if a daughter of the King has been handed over to your care for the duration of your earthly life or some percentage of it, It would be a high crime against heaven for you to treat her as if she did not belong to Him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. As we've often said around here, and I say again without apology, to love each other best, you cannot love each other first. Christ must be your first love. This is the backdrop of everything that's being said. Christ has called these people. These are genuine Christians. Paul isn't talking about lost people in this chapter. The chapter focuses on two aspects of Christ's call to married couples. So here's your marriage seminar on Easter Sunday. You ready? Number one, Christ's call upon married couples is He calls His people. Here's a big word, and I'm speaking in veiled terms because we got young ears. Christ calls His people to conjugal fulfillment. And number two, Christ calls His people to covenantal commitment. If you take all the data in chapter 7, that God says to married people, you could put it under those two headings. First, He calls husbands and wives to conjugal fulfillment. As strange as it may seem to some, and you're already wondering what in the world have you gotten yourself into by visiting this church, God is not ashamed. He doesn't blush to explain His instructions to married people about their conjugal rights. God made you. He made all of you. The Old Testament sign of the covenant that you were part of God's people could only be applied to men. It was the sign of circumcision. Isn't that a strange thing? Well, not so much if you realize that the most intimate human relationship possible for God's people carried a very obvious reminder that God's right in the middle of the most intimate possible relationship on earth. He's not ashamed, he's not embarrassed, he doesn't blush. God made you, he made all of you, every part of you. He alone has the rights to determine what type of behavior you do with your body. I'm again asking in a more subtle way than I did earlier, who owns you? Who owns you? Biblically speaking, marital intimacy is for a twofold purpose. You get every book of the whole Bible, you find all the verses that you can possibly find, on the act of marriage, and you'll find that there's really a twofold purpose for why God created such a thing. Number one, procreation. And number two, pleasure. Just a quick word on procreation. The Muslim world is saying, we don't really care how many more missionaries you guys send to the Middle East or South Asia or to the Horn of Africa. Just send all the missionaries you want to because we're just going to outpopulate you. And for a long time, the statistics range all over the place, but if you take somewhere in the middle, they're outpopulating us ten to one. But God spoke to us at the very beginning and said, be fruitful and multiply. And children are a blessing from the Lord. and It's an honor, it's a crown. A man shall be thrilled as his children sit his vines around his table. He'll speak with his friends in the gate about the blessing of the Lord. How blessed is the woman who fears the Lord. There's so much good territory in Scripture about the blessing of children. So intimacy is given for procreation. But it's also given for pleasure. And that's what this chapter mainly focuses on. God's not ashamed about that. There's three things God says about Christ's call to conjugal fulfillment in chapter 7. Now, let me just say clearly that this call is upon, listen carefully, husband and wife. Singular male and female the first thing god says is the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and the wife to her husband you understand what's happening in verse 3 don't you this is clearly taught in the chapter the only kind of marriage god sanctions is between one man and one woman the husband his wife the wife her husband it harkens back to Genesis 2, which was quoted in the previous chapter, 1 Corinthians 6, to say, the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. So the purpose of this first call of Christ upon married couples, that's explicitly stated in, in verse 2, fulfill your duty to your wife. That's conjugal fulfillment. The purpose is, verse 2 tells us, to prevent something. What is it to prevent? Immoralities. Immoralities. So a similarly stated purpose is given to us in verse 5. Because of your lack of self-control, you need not refrain long from conjugal fulfillment because you'll be subject to the attack of Satan. So the first thing is husbands fulfill duty to wife and wife to husband. What this means is God is a realist. The Bible is for real people. Not just a bunch of ethereal, spiritual talk way up in the clouds somewhere. It's where your feet touch the ground. Paul's a realist. He's not blind to the fact that a vast majority of human beings will either get married or live in sexual sin. As a means to help us avoiding sinning against God, our benevolent Creator who loves us, wove us together like a quilt in our mother's womb. As a means to help us avoid sinning against Him, God created the institution of human marriage as a mirror of his own love and his own delight in his people. This same incentive to get married, that is, to avoid sexual sin and to provide gratification, is given again in verse 9. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. So that's the first word that Paul gives to married couples apparently the Corinthians were confused about this issue because you remember in our previous chapters those who were with us that a lot of people are living in a lot of sexual sin in Corinth and some people might have said in their writing to Paul so we got a question should we just never ever ever engage in that and Paul's like no way he clearly lays out that Christ's call on Christian marriages is to fulfill your intimate duty to one another but number two and this is so important to married couples under their conjugal fulfillment, Christ's call also includes verse 4. Husbands have authority over the wife's body, and wives have authority over the husband's body. Do you see that in verse 4? It's related to the first issue, and it's vitally important to keep this in view. And here's how it's related. You all with me still? Although marriage is a preventative against sexual sinful exploits that's number one it is not the only reason to get married in fact that would be entirely selfish verse 4 says yeah God created marriage and intimacy within it for pleasure however marriage at its root is designed by God to be a picture of the gospel that is Christ's own love for his bride the church and he gave himself for her good just as Jesus laid down his life not figuratively literally for the welfare of his bride so also husbands and wives are to be others oriented when it comes to marital intimacy while personal gratification is definitely in view and I'm not even trying to hint that it's not it is in the chapter Personal gratification is clearly in view in this chapter, and God is not ashamed of it, but the underlying principle is partner gratification is uppermost. That's what it means when it says in verse 4, wife has authority over the husband's body, husband over the wife. So let's get real. When you get married, you do not gain a self-gratification toy. You give yourself away to another for their enjoyment and pleasure. That's biblical. That's verse 4. Christians understand the principle that's underneath this it's the gospel did anybody that you know joyfully relinquish authority over himself for the pleasure of another Jesus this is a picture of the gospel that's what salvation requires the giving of oneself for the good of another similarly in our marriages on the basis of the gospel the release of authority over our own body to our spouse doesn't mean they're now our God but it's a portrait of what we've already done it's a parable to say I've already given myself away to Jesus for eternity and that's why I keep asking you I'm gonna ask again and this is the last time who owns you if you haven't given yourself to Jesus you can't give yourself to your spouse in this way because this is a parable Of that purchase. Number three. Well, before I go there, um, the authority from husband to wife and wife to husband over one another's bodies means that mutual consent must must be in place for any intimacy to be God-glorifying. You can't dictate authority over another person without violating their conscience unless they consent. And that's clear from the teaching of chapter 7. The third thing and the final thing that God says to married couples about their conjugal fulfillment one to another is that there are times when you should fast from marital intimacy. You should not do that for the purpose of prayer. This is verse 5. Because marriage, including intimacy, is designed by God as a picture of the gospel, And because spouses are to give themselves away in submission to one another's authority, that's what we've already covered, it should be no surprise then that Christ calls married couples at times to fast from intimacy, to refrain from it. That's what verse 5 clearly teaches. Stop depriving one another except for a time by mutual agreement for prayer, mutually agreed upon, and it ought to be rare, like all fasting. It's not the norm, it's the exception. Now let's get real once again. God's not blushing, and we might be. Don't you know that God Almighty hears the prayer of a newlywed couple? Or an empty nesting couple? Or an aged married couple? Don't you know that God Almighty hears the prayers of a man and wife who kneel together with hands Clasps clasped on the side of their bed, begging God for the salvation of their children. Real salty tears coming down their cheeks as they're asking God Almighty for the advance of the gospel among the unreached nations. Wives pouring out their small, quiet, still voice in the most simple phrases that earth has ever heard that cause heaven itself to shake when the wife is saying, God, the money's run out again. Would you provide for our finances so that our ends can meet again this month? What about when a husband with a broken heart kneeling beside his bed with his wife in arms says, God, our church is fractured. There's not unity anymore. The people are grumbling and complaining. There's a spirit of bitterness It sprung up. Now it's defiling the many. God, for Jesus' sake, would You unify our church so that our witness in the world wouldn't be discredited and Christ's name wouldn't be dishonored. Whatever it may be that husbands and wives fast from intimacy concerning so that they can hit their knees in prayer together rather than getting intimate with one another, that's a fast, Isaiah 56, that honors the Lord. And it bends his ear so that he hears and he provides. But let's be clear, that ought to be the exception, not the rule. That's verse 5. It's not God-glorifying to go live in a monastery somewhere and refrain from lifelong intimacy in your marriage. Otherwise, do you see what the verse says? Satan will tempt you. Satan will tempt you. And I appreciate so much the devotion we heard yesterday morning at the men's and uh, boys' breakfast time where we were told clearly from God's Word on the basis of the book of James sexual temptation is not something that you stand up against and fight you flee you run and while we are no match for Satan Satan is no match for our God and Satan will tempt you if you refrain unnecessarily so Christ's three words to married couples for those who are really ready for me to move on to another theme are conjugal fulfillment That's your duty to one another. Relinquishing authority over your own body and giving it to your mate. And number three, mutually agreed upon times within your marriage where you fast from intimacy for the purpose of prayer. In each of these three ways, Jesus Christ is being shown to be the foundation of the marriage. And this brings glory to God. Now the question we asked earlier I hope that it's just a little more clear and I understand I'm a stammering you know, bumbling, fumbling preacher a lot of times. But I do hope and pray that it's a little more clear that there is a direct relationship between the gospel of Jesus Christ and your marriage. Paul says one other thing to married couples. It's not only conjugal fulfillment but it's covenantal commitment. Concerning the covenant of marriage and when it is sometimes broken. This passage has five things to say. Collect all the data. List it out. You get number one, verses 10 and 11. Separation for a married couple is rarely advisable, but there may be times. And if a couple divorces on unbiblical grounds, they ought not remarry. What if I got married when I was 18? What if we eloped with my high school sweetheart? What if we divorced just less than a year later? There's all kind of hard, practical situations. And I come to you not with, well, I don't care about what you're facing, let me just yell at you what God's Word says. I'm coming to you to say, there's not one person who has ever followed Jesus who has not been called to surrender everything everybody gives up everything everybody and there are hard calls of the gospel in people's lives and this is one of them covenantal commitment verses 10 and 11 indicates that separation though on occasion may be advisable that's very rare but if a couple divorces on unbiblical grounds they ought not remarry but rather verse 11 this is clear be reconciled that's the first thing Number two, verses 12 and 13. If two unbelievers get married, let's say neither one are Christians. He's not, she's not. They don't follow Jesus, claim to follow Jesus, and they don't care anything about anybody who does follow Jesus. They're they're unbelievers and they get married. Then, because God's bigger than you are, He saves one of them. What happens to that marriage? Let's say the wife comes to Christ and the husband's still a pagan. Should they get divorced? Verses 12 and 13, the answer is very clear. No. And verse 14 gives us a very, 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 should I keep going? Good reason. Because the spouse who does not believe is, quote, sanctified. Do you see that? And the children of that relationship are, quote, holy. Do you see that? This means that the spouse and the children may also get saved as a result of the witness and life of the Christian spouse. Which is an awesome reason to stay married to somebody who doesn't believe the gospel. You shouldn't marry them to begin with if you're a Christian. God says something about that later in the chapter. But if you were neither believers and you got married and one of you gets saved, praise God for that. Let's just start praying with all our hearts that God will save everybody under the roof. Sanctify The spouse is sanctified? Uh oh, I got a problem now, preacher, because I read my Bible a few times and I thought, I thought the only way to get saved was personal faith in Jesus and turning from my sin. But this verse says, if I'm not a Christian, but my wife becomes one, I'm sanctified because of her salvation. Does that mean I get saved because she's a Christian? I'm so glad you asked. No. No. T.S. Evans put it well in its beautifully written sentence. This husband stands upon the threshold of the church. His surroundings are hallowed ground. He's united to a saintly consort. He's in daily contact with saintly conduct. Eventually, Evans writes, his holy association may become holy assimilation. And eventually, the potentate may penetrate his heart. Jeffrey Wilson said, if a person becomes a Christian after getting married, it's a mixed marriage. That's the only kind of mixed marriage in the whole Bible, by the way. You can marry anybody of any color, any shade, any stripe, from anywhere on the planet that speaks any language, provided they're a Christian. That's a biblical theology of permissibility on marriage. But there are mixed marriages in the Bible. Be sure you get this right. It's not the hue of the pigmentation in your skin. It's the honor of Christ in your heart. Christians are only to marry Christians. So that's how the spouse is sanctified. What about these kids? How do they get holy? I really personally appreciate, and some of you will know I'm Tongue in cheek. Several people who know me really well in this church, by the way, say that nobody ever laughs at my jokes because they don't know one side of me. And uh, I'd like to think that's true, but it's probably because my jokes are bad. But uh, I really do personally appreciate, and some of you will know that I'm speaking a little tongue in cheek, though I believe this with every fiber of my being, what Jeffrey Wilson pointed out about children made holy. He said, If making children holy in this verse means we ought to baptize them, because they're now Christians, then the verse has to mean in context that the unbelieving spouse, who's also a, not a Christian, is also eligible for baptism. And there's not anybody in the history of the world that would argue for that. So I get a, a little bit of, uh, you know, probably sinister kick out of the fact that people sometimes use this verse to say children are somehow redeemed because one of the parents are. Look, I hope you were raised by godly people. I hope you got Lois and Eunice all over your family. I hope you got godly grandmamas and moms and dads and brothers and sisters. But being close to Christians in proximity doesn't make you at all close to Jesus in intimacy. You don't get saved by biology. It's not a DNA issue. It's a deity issue. Have you given your heart to King Jesus? So it doesn't mean that they're saved through the believer's salvation, but it means that they're a great candidate and in God's sovereignty it looks like they're in a high percentile of the people that God may be hunting down in His mercy. And doesn't verse 16 say it? For how do you know, O husband? How do you know, O wife, whether you will save your spouse? Paul doesn't think they're the Savior. He knows that they understand Him to mean lead them to the Savior. Now, I'll probably start crying if I talk about it too much. But i got a bunch of notes here in my manuscript, and I'm only going to say one little thing about it because it'll probably turn me into a puddle of mess up here and it'd be a joyful mess. There's not a single human being in the history of this 12-year-old church, that's how old we are, that's been prayed for out loud in our Sunday morning prayer meeting than Mitch Donovan. It's not even close. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Sunday. 2006, 7, 8, 9, 10, you keep going. Here's Laura. It's me again, Jesus. And that retired Memphis police officer who became a great friend of mine through all the years and some of the deep, deep, deepest sorrows that any parents could possibly walk through, the death of their daughter, missionary to Ethiopia, who died in an auto accident about 25 miles north of here. God heard that woman's prayer. Mitch got saved and baptized about two years ago as a retiree. And I believe it was on the back of a praying wife who knew something about verse 16. How do you know? He might not do it. You might not have a Mitch and Laura story. God is not beholden to any man though He's not a respecter of any persons when He does choose to save. He's God in heaven and we're not. But we're His children. If we come and ask Him, how do you know God might just save your spouse? Praise God. And I want to say loud and clear, if God can save Mitch Donovan, He'd be the first one to get up here and applaud what I'm about to say and finish this sentence. And I'll just throw myself in the bucket. If He can save Jordan Thomas, He can save any one of you. So number two, Not only don't get separated and don't get divorced and all that in verses 10 and 11, unless it's on biblical grounds, in verse 12 and 13, stay married even if one of you becomes a Christian and the other doesn't. Number three, Paul says, if you're married, you ought not seek to be released from your spouse. This is verse 27. If you're divorced on biblical grounds and you're later remarried to another person, that's a different issue. The passage deals with that. But you shouldn't seek to be released. You know there are people who say one thing but want another thing. You know what the Bible calls those people? If they're strategizing to do something different than what they're saying, like they got a plot, there's a plan. The Bible calls those people evil schemers. And I promise you, that's not something you want God to call you. And that's what Paul's talking about in verse 27. If you're married, don't seek to be released from your spouse. And he's talking about a decent marriage that's not riddled with the permissible reasons that ought to lead to separation and perhaps divorce. Number four, verse 33 and 34. Instead of selfishly seeking to be released from your marriage, that's what we just talked about, you should do something else. Have an epic turn of the tide called focus on pleasing your spouse you see it in verse 33 and 34 focus on that how can I make my spouse happy not in their carnality not indulging in any sinful thing that may appeal to them but truly lastingly happy how can I serve in big ways and small ways to live for their joy in Jesus intimacy and everything else Seek the pleasure of your spouse. So you see what happened from the last point. Stop being so selfish that you're trying to get rid of them. Now you've had a Copernican revolution and you're focusing on their pleasure. That brings glory to God. You know why? Because that's what Jesus did for you. Number five. God designed marriage to be a till death do us part covenant. Till death do us part. I want to say something to the men because I think the sisters, generally speaking, uh, in church history have been a little better at this, though not immune to the sinful uh, negligence that that men are uh, susceptible to also. But I want to say men, brothers, uh, I love you, you love me. A lot of of brothers in this church have helped me so much uh, in all my relationships, including my marriage. Men, I want to say to you, your wife ought to be more beautiful to you at 85 than she was at 25. That's verse 39. Only death. And the older you get and the more you grow together in Jesus, the more you see the beauty of Christ ooze out of the life of your spouse, they ought to be more attractive to you. And if you don't see much oozing coming out of their life concerning the life of Christ coming through them before your eyes, then try prayer try tears, try patience, try love, try deference, try giving authority of yourself to your spouse, try trying to please them, laying down your life as Christ did for His bride. Although Paul offers that if uh, your spouse does die and that covenant of marriage is now broken and you are free, no doubt about it, to remarry if you're a widow or widower, Paul does believe, verse 40, that the person will be happier if they just remain a widow or widower. Okay, that's marriage. Some of you are thinking, well man, I didn't have to listen to any of that because I'm not married yet. Or I once was and I'm not anymore. Well, it's your turn. Singleness and the call of Christ. Singleness. Paul deals with two types of singleness in this chapter. First, people who've never been married. And second, people who've been previously married. To the never married, there's only one group of people, and Paul refers to them as virgins. That's verse 25 and 26. And the surrounding verses, he mentions it elsewhere. The three things Paul says to this group of people, the people who've never been married, number one, he says, if you're thinking about marriage, there's something you really need to keep in mind. Have you ever thought about this? This is one of the billion, gajillion reasons I love the Bible. I never would have thought about this unless the Bible just said it. One thing you ought to think about if you desire to be married, something in the equation, should you get married, is persecution. Verse 25-26. Persecution ought to play a vital role in your decision about whether or not to get married. Paul calls it in verse 26, the present distress. That was one of Paul's reasons for giving his trustworthy opinion in verse 25, that perhaps those who've never married ought not marry. Can I... Help you understand what Paul's thinking about when he writes such a thing. The present distress. It wasn't too long after he wrote this letter that they whisked him away from his prison cell. And they took that cloak off his back that Timothy brought to him for the winter. They hit him real good with that long club just behind his knees so that he would fall down so that they could force his head onto the chopping block, so that the samurai could swing his sword and decapitate him. That's because Paul lived in a day where Christians were really persecuted. And do I need to remind you that over 200, and I don't know the stripe of their faith, I know nothing about the fidelity to true Christianity. I I don't know if they were genuine Christians or not. God knows I don't, but I know this. In an island off the coast of South India just a few hours ago, over 200 people were blown apart about uh, bombs in churches on Easter Sunday morning. This isn't a first century situation. This is a 2019 situation. And persecution, like when emperors named Domitian and Nero, the Caesar in Paul's day, are torching Christians, putting them on lampposts, impaling their body, dousing them with kerosene, and lighting them on fire as street lights for the dinner party. Paul himself getting decapitated. Paul, just a few years earlier, holding the garments of the men who stoned Stephen to death. He's saying the present distress ought to play a role in whether or not you get married. Peter, who did choose to get married, we know so because Jesus healed his mother-in-law, and there's only one way to get one of those, was crucified upside down. You think his wife may have had a bitter well in the night? When her beloved was pinned to a tree in mockery of Jesus' crucifixion. Marriage is a guarantee for suffering and sorrow. That's what Paul's saying. It's a guarantee. Barring unusual circumstances, one spouse is going to die before the other. Sorrow is inevitable. What if that sorrow is not just kind of your normal, natural, end of life death? What if that sorrow is owing to prolonged persecution? What if they rape and pillage? What if they come into your village and they take your husband from in front of you and in front of your kids? What if, like Richard Wormbrand in that Romanian prison cell, if you'll just deny Jesus, they'll let you out of there. But because you won't, they're bringing your wife to the other side of the bars and doing unspeakable things to her in front of your eyes and all you got to do is say, I don't know Jesus. And they'll unlock the door. Paul's saying persecution's one reason you need to be thinking about whether or not you should get married. Number two, to those who've never been married, he said, man, think about what, a, what an opportune situation you have. Think about how poised your life is right now to do something. Verse 34, to be concerned only about the things of the Lord. Wow. Wow. Now I'm going to be honest with you and say, I sure wish I could go back and do a lot of things different. There's a lot of regrets in my past. There's so much sin behind me that if some of you knew that, you wouldn't think Jesus could save somebody like me. And I still meet people to this day from my high school class and campus who are jaw-dropped to find out I'm a pastor of all things. How did I schmooze y'all? I'm just a testimony to the fact that there's a big God, but I I would go back and, and change a lot of stuff if I could. But you want to know the number one thing I would change? If I could go back and do anything else over again. There's no doubt. Number two is not even close. I'd give my life to Jesus a whole lot sooner. I became a Christian while I was a freshman in college, and I don't regret it because God is good. But I sure would have been spared from a lot. But it's not only a selfish reason that I wish I would have given my life to Jesus earlier. I think about all the time wasted. I was a spiritual leader before I became a Christian. It was just the wrong spirit and leading the wrong direction. And I had a lot of influence over a lot of people. And so do you. Verse 34 says, Think about your singleness. Before you get married, think about this. You get to be concerned. And I'm using God's Word. Only about the things of the Lord. Young people, i got advice for you on how to find a spouse. You run as fast as you can toward Jesus of Nazareth. Full speed. Occasionally look to the left or the right see who's keeping up. If there's anybody over there, you try to outpace them. Pick up your pace. You go hard after Christ all over again. You forget about them. You look at Him. And then occasionally, you glance around and see if anybody's left. And if there's anybody else keeping pace, then maybe they're a viable candidate. And in your engagement moment, it may not be these words, but I think this would be the sense of it and be a perfect proposal question for a suitor to ask to his beloved. Psalm 34, verse 3. Would you magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together? While you're single, you have an opportunity to be concerned only about the things of the Lord. Now I've got a question for you and... I wish somebody would ask me, I'm not throwing stones. I'm saying welcome to the club. But I do have a question. If you're not married today, whether that's never been married or previously married, whatever the case is, have you ever been biblically single? There's only one way to be biblically single. Wholehearted devotion to Jesus. Using and leveraging your life and the liberties you have that you wouldn't if you were married. For the sake of the king. Well, third and finally, what God says to the never married, He talks to the dads of the girls in this case, verse thirty-six to thirty-eight, and He says it's not sinful to let your daughter get married in light of all this other stuff. I said people may start thinking, ah, then we'll never get married. No, that's not what He's after. He's saying if if, if that happens and, and you give your daughter with a clear conscience to a young man or whom whatever age man, uh, biblically speaking, both are believers she desires to get married, then that's not sinful, verse 36 to 38. Nor is it sinful if she doesn't desire and your conscience is clear with that and you're not being kind of guilt-tripped into some kind of situation. Uh, there's se- singleness is not second-class citizenship in God's kingdom. And uh, though our churches, in this one, I'm sure, have, have not done the best job of figuring out how, how the dance works. Um, we, we live in a fallen world. It's not going to be perfect. Newsflash. But... Uh, Not only is singleness not second-class citizenship in God's kingdom, the most important person in the kingdom was never married. The passage is clear that neither choice is sinful. Verse 36 to 38, get married, don't get married. If she marries, 36, that's not sin. If she remains single, 37, she's doing well. Verse 38, Paul clearly says that he thinks that singleness is the better option. But that's because of the current situation in the first century. And he's clear that it's not commanded of the Lord, and it's only, if you go all the way back to verse 7, for those who've been given the gift of celibacy, presumably like the Apostle Paul. Finally, to the previously married. There's two kinds of those people. That is, those whose spouse died, and that is those marriages that ended in divorce. So let's just touch these, and then we'll be off for a joyful day have many other things I trust. Previously married. That's widows. So a widow or a widower, those of you who may be unfamiliar with that terminology, is somebody whose spouse has died. There are several such in our church's history and in our current congregation. It's a sorrowful situation. It's an opportunity for the grace of Jesus to sustain somebody, whether they've been married short or long is irrelevant when it comes to the touch of that kind of sorrow. And Jesus loves to get close to the brokenhearted and show his kindness and tender touch to those who are grieving the loss of a spouse. And in time, for some of those people, God does awaken an interest in the possibility of getting married again. And so the Corinthians wanted to know, ah, is that okay? And God's answer through Paul is very clear. Yes, that's okay. To that issue, Paul says two things. He says in verse 8, Remember, your singleness, your widowness, can be a mighty opportunity to serve Jesus. And he also says in his opinion, verse 40, he thinks you'll probably be happier if you don't remarry. But that's not a thus saith the Lord command. Does this forbid marriage after the death of a spouse? No. Does the Bible crystal clear on the issue? Yes. It's not debated among any Bible interpreters. But the second thing he says is verse 39. A marriage is binding as long as your spouse lives. Then, you're free to remarry, but you see the phrase? Only in the Lord. Christians can only marry Christians for it to be a God-pleasing marriage. Well, should widows remarry? Paul also wrote other books of the Bible. First Timothy, he said this, "I want younger widows to get married." First Timothy 5:14. Well, that's pretty clear. That's the widows. Now to the unmarried. Hmm, who is that? Verse 8, verse 11, verse 34. This is our last section here on God's instruction to the single. He uses this word unmarried. Do you see it? 8, 11, and 34. It's the Greek word agamos. And I'm telling you that because we studied a couple weeks ago what the alpha, a, a, does to a word in Greek. It makes it negative. Unrighteous. adikosune. Unmarried. Agamos. It's the negative just like we put un or d in front of A word. It literally means unmarried, but it's a fourth category of relationships that Paul's dealing with in this chapter, and that's very obvious. He deals with married, he deals with widowed, he deals with virgins, and now here's the other one, unmarried. Agamas. Isn't that the same group as some of these other single people? No. The word refers to the previously married. People a lot smarter than me have all agreed. John MacArthur points out in his sermon on this text, quote, there are only two ways that you can be married and then Not married. You're either widowed, your spouse dies, or divorced. The marriage is severed in that way. MacArthur points out that the Corinthians were people just like us, weren't they? So when they write questions to Paul, they got a bunch of questions. How the married people live, how the people who've never been married live, how the people who used to be married live. How does the gospel apply? And in their questions about marriage and singleness, they ask something about married folks, verse one. They have something about never married folks, verse 25. They have something about previously married folks. Verse 8. The reason I believe Paul's speaking about divorcees in his use of the word unmarried is twofold. First, agamos. I've already told you about that. And second, because he makes a distinction between this group of people and the people who've never been married. If unmarried means you've never been married, then there's no reason to talk about the never married and the unmarried. He does it repeatedly through the passage. So they once were gamost, married. Now they're agamos, unmarried. And MacArthur concludes, and I love little sentences like this because they help me, this has to be what that means. (laughs) Divorced. Verses 9 and 10, the apostle quotes Jesus' teaching to emphasize that folks who get divorced should remain single or they should reconcile with their spouse. Their singleness can be used following their divorce for a unique capacity of service to Christ and therefore they ought to consider Christ's call in their life to not remarry or be restored to their spouse after repentance and reconciliation and all those wonderful graces of the gospel that restoration of that marriage would also bring a particular and peculiar glory to Jesus wow the watching world would say God can even help people who do that maybe he can help me but let me do my best to say exactly what this text says I have three sentences I'll quote it directly if they the Agamas verse 8 and the widows which means some other people what do they what do they do if they lack self-control what do divorced people do if they just can't do the single life because of passions and Lack of self-control. It's not a sinful lack of self-control. It's a natural lack of self-control. It's not Galatians 5. It's 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says in verse 8 what they should do. Marry. Get married. Because, quote, that's better than to burn with passion. Now I believe something that I didn't used to believe. I believe that Paul is sanctioning second marriages in the case of biblically permissible divorces. Now every single case is unique. It must be dealt with in light of all the relevant text of the Bible under the care of godly people who want nothing but the best for the person and glory for God. And when I say relevant text, I mean what does Jesus mean with Matthew 5 exception clauses and Matthew 19? What does he mean with no exception clause in Mark 10 and in Luke 16? What does Paul mean with his illustration about the law and gospel in Romans 7 or his teaching about Christ and the church in Ephesians 5? What does Deuteronomy 24 mean and how does that apply to all of this? That's what I mean by all the relevant texts. It's not just a whim. Oh, well, I got divorced. I'm going to go get remarried. Tremble. Because marriage exists, Ephesians 5, marriage exists mainly to show God's love for His people. And the book of Hosea is in the Bible. And we have to walk with a lot of fear and trembling. Well, I'm going to conclude here with your applications, you wonderful people. First to everybody, second to married people, third to single people. First to everybody. I'm going to ask you again what I asked you at the beginning. Have you been bought? Verse 23. Have you joyfully and gladly... Sold yourself, not with your own money or not to make some kind of monetary profit, but sold yourself, body, soul, and mind, to the Savior Jesus. Have you been bought? He paid an infinite price for you. Yes, it speaks to our dignity, if you will, our value, the fact that we are worth something. But if that's what you see in the price He paid mainly, then you don't see the reason He paid the price mainly. The reason He paid such a steep price, God's own Son died for you, is not primarily our worth, but God's honor. To restore His character in the forgiveness of sinners, how can it be that He would remain God and befriend somebody as wicked as me? He can't, he can't sweep my sin under the rug and uphold His honor and in, integrity and character. Somebody has to deal with the problem. And that's the price that Jesus paid. Have you been bought? Have you been bought? If so, this verse says in 23, don't be a slave to anybody. Anybody else. It means give Him your all. Stop selling yourself to yourself. And stop selling yourself to other people and other pleasures because Christ is now your all in all. And there's no other way to a favorable meeting with God than the risen Jesus. So that's to everybody. To the married, I say to us all, let's take up the happy place and help each other to this happy place of dying to ourself as the ultimate purpose for our marriage even though gratification is no doubt part of what the text teaches that marriage exists for and the pleasures therein, strangely, the reason that the passage gives us most of all to get married is to not just avoid immorality, but so we can have an every single day illustration of what it looks like to be under the authority of somebody else. It's one thing to say, Jesus is my King. And it's another thing to live every single day like your spouse has authority over you. This is a parable every day to test your devotion to Jesus. It's a most surprising thing, isn't it? I didn't deal with the challenging passage because maybe I don't understand it, but uh, verse 29 to 31 says, if you're married, live like you're not. If you weep, weep like you don't cry. If you rejoice, rejoice like you don't rejoice. If you buy stuff, act like you don't possess it. If you use the world, act like you don't ever use it. Okay. Piper said this doesn't mean move out of your house. doesn't mean don't have sex within marriage. doesn't mean don't call your spouse by sweet, endearing names like honey. Earlier in this chapter, Paul says, quote, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, verse 3. He says that to love her in the way that Christ loved the church is Christ's call upon Him to lead, to provide, to protect, Ephesians 5. It means this, marriage is momentary. It means that your marriage is going to be over when you or she takes her last breath. It means that there's no marriage in the resurrection. So wives and husbands are second priorities, not first. Christ is first and marriage exists, I love it, for the much making of Jesus. That's what it means. That's to the married people. So let's figure that out together and to the single. And finally... Whether that means you've never been married, one day you hope to be married, maybe it means you were formerly married, or in sorrow upon sorrow, maybe it means you've experienced the death of your spouse. If you're single in any one of those many categories, I have an application for you. Undistracted devotion to Jesus. That's what Paul calls for in this text. If you've never been biblically single, how do you know you're a suitable candidate for biblical marriage? If you hadn't lived by yourself in a way that proves that you know what it means to be fully devoted to Jesus, how do you think you're going to help somebody else? Be fully devoted to Jesus. Live your life at full tilt for Christ. Use all your creative juices to try to think of new ways to advance the gospel in the lives of the people that you know the most, or are closest to, or love the dearest. Figure out how to partner with married couples in the sharing of Christ to their children and their communities and in their church. Find consistent ways to serve Jesus among His people and among the lost. Look for ways to serve your church. Try to find extra ways that you can serve the church. Look what needs to be done and just figure out ways that you might be able to do it or to employ others in the fulfillment of it. Ask the Holy Spirit if you could have the honor of taking the gospel to the least reached places in the world. Why not pray that prayer all over again even if you prayed it 10 years ago and felt like God wasn't leading you that way, why not just lay your life down on the altar of Jesus for this lifetime rather than seeking to gain the whole world? Sell your precious soul into lifetime slavery to Jesus. And unless you get married, vow over and over and over and over again every single day that you're going to trust Jesus to fill you with everything you need to glorify His name in countless ways until you see His lovely face. This is Christ's call on all of us, isn't it? The married, the single, and everybody in between. Well, may God help us, and may God bless us to obey. Following this prayer, we're going to sing a song, and I challenge you to make it your prayer. If you don't sing it out loud, that's fine. If you sing it with all your might and make the rafters shake, that's just as fine. But I am going to challenge all of you to make it your prayer. Lord, I need you. Let's pray together and then we'll sing in response and then I'll come and close our service. Oh Father, we pray that You would cause our whole life, our whole life to be a fragrant aroma of Christ to You. Marriage and singleness, sorrows of walking through the valley of the shadow of death of our own spouses, singleness that seems forever prolonged as with longings to be married going apparently unfulfilled, and challenges of broken marriages and divorces. Oh God, oh God, thank You that You care enough about us just to say plain stuff. Black ink on white paper so we know what to do to honor You. What matters, you say in this chapter, is not religi- religious exercise, circumcision, uncircumcision. What matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. And that's what we want to do, Lord. That's who we want to be. So I pray for those who, who need to find out the joy of being bought by Jesus. And I pray for those of us who have known that joy, but for whatever reason, have been slaves to other things. Oh, fill us with Christ. We pray for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.